Leviticus chapter 12. One of the most exciting things, watch me as I shuffle all around here. One of the most exciting things for, for uh, married couples and for grandparents and parents is to uh, celebrate the birth of a child, uh, to celebrate the birth of a grandchild, a great-grandchild. It's one of the most exciting things that God has given His people to walk through, um, and it's a great joy to be able to do that, and I've done it three times, um, and uh, it's been a privilege each time, and usually it's afterwards that we, when we reflect on it, where, you know, it really starts to hit us. Um, but I have a funny story that I want to share with you as we think of childbirth, and it's one I've shared with a few of you before, um, but it was kind of a bit of a scary moment for Bailey and I when we first had Lane. We were in the hospital in Grand River in Ontario. It's not really that scary. Don't, just don't be on the edge of your seats. It, yeah, I, I oversold that. We'll see. Um, we were at the hospital, and uh, I was not allowed to stay for the epidural where they give, you know, that big, huge, massive needle, um, and I... Cheers to Bailey for doing that. Um, I could not. I could barely stand to look at it. Um, but anyways, I had to leave the room for that, obviously. And uh, so they asked me to leave, and I thought, well, it's a great time. We'll take a break, stretch the legs, go grab a coffee. There's a Tim Hortons in the, in the lounge downstairs. And so I did that, and I was on my way down the stairs, and I took the elevator because it's quicker, right? I'll be back in time. And uh, what I found when I got on the elevator was getting to the bottom floor was a lot trickier than the stairs would have been. And uh, the elevator actually stopped working on me halfway th down to the, to the lobby to get my coffee. And uh, so I was kind of stuck, and I didn't really know what to do. I was like, is this seriously happening to me? Like, are you kidding me? So uh, I hit the emergency button, and uh, I waited, and I'm sitting there twiddling my thumbs like Bailey's up in the room, and she just got the needle, and she's progressing. You know, am I, how long am I going to be in here? How long does it take to get an elevator fixed? And uh, anyways, I was waiting in there, and I was waiting, and I was waiting, and I skipped the Tim Hortons run after that because I needed to get back upstairs. Um, but I got, uh, eventually somebody came, they pried the doors open, I climbed up halfway, I was stuck like right in between two levels. And uh, so I climbed out, and I was like, I'm not going back that way, I'll take the stairs. So I, I made my way back to the stairs, and there's probably about 30 minutes or so, Bailey would say, you know, 40, 45, it felt like a lot longer. The nurse was saying to Bailey, like, is he coming back? As in like... Have they had this happen before? Like, has somebody actually just left and not come back? Like, of course he's coming back. There's a reason he's not here. <laughs> Anyways, so, uh, so we get back, and, and Bailey's, you know, obviously there's questions of what happens. Like, I just, I got stuck in an elevator. Like, of course that happens. Of course it happens. Anyways, it was, it was, a, an, it was a bit of a fearful story, but it was one of like, okay, am I going to be there? Am I going to make it? Bailey's wondering, where is this guy? Like, uh, you know. Lane is coming, or he's going to be, and is he just gone? Um, and, uh, and so a bit of a less exciting time. But I remember when we had Lane then that, uh, later that day, the excitement of being able to you know, turn to mom and dad or to get Bailey's family up on, on FaceTime and to show them the baby and, and uh, to introduce them to Lane uh, was just uh, awesome. And, and it, it's exciting, and it's, um, it's a privilege, it's a blessing. And so it's a great thing to be able to do that and to walk through that as a couple, and especially when you can be there for that as I was. But the Bible gives great value to children and to new birth, to the birth of children. 
In Psalm 127, it says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. Right? And in Genesis 1, Adam and Eve, when we see Adam and Eve, and, and what does God say to them? He says, be fruitful and what? Multiply. Right? God had um, great value and placed on children, on, on raising children and having children. And in the Gospels, Jesus, what does he say? He says, let the children come to me, right? We remember those words. And that's quite a contrast from what we see in the, our culture today or uh, surrounding new birth today. Because oftentimes, new birth is sacrificed on the altar of careers or convenience, you know, or finances and, and these other things. And couples feel inadequate to be able to do to be able to have children. And so new birth is sacrificed on those altars and those idols even uh, because of our sin. And yet followers of God should be marked for their complete opposite and opposition to those things and their high view of human life. That's what we should be marked by, this high view of human life and dignity and worth. Because each person has all of those things as we read in our liturgy this morning, just reading in the psalm about how God knows our time before we were even thought of, and even in the womb, God has each day for us planned, and He knows everything about us, and He's forming us. God loves His creation, and each one of His children has value and worth. And God's the one who gives life, God's the one who takes that away. So as we come to Leviticus 12 this morning, I keep kind of getting these these ceremonies or these celebrations or these rituals, which is great, but we're at another point in Leviticus 12 where it seems to be an exciting time because there is a new birth, and there's a new birth in the nation of Israel, and, or at least God is explaining what happens when that occurs. And so we're having a celebratory time of new life, and we're going to see a purification ritual that uh, each family would walk through in that process. So if you would read with me, I'm going to read the whole of chapter 12 of Leviticus, just follow along as we read the word of the Lord this morning. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel saying, if a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days. As at the time of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then he shall continue for she shall continue for 33 days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are completed. Verse 5, but if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean for two weeks as in her menstruation, and she shall continue in the blood of her purifying for 66 days. And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb, a year old for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. And he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. Verse 8, if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her and she shall be clean. This is the word of the Lord. The first thing we see in Leviticus 12 is impurity 
prescribed, impurity prescribed in the first five verses. See, a mother who had a child, a newborn child, and this isn't just the first, this is any time a, a baby is born, a mother would be considered unclean. And there's many different reasons and speculations as to why that is, and I'll offer one in a moment. But there's a difference between moral purity and ritual purity, and I think Pastor Jeff just alluded to that last week as he was up here. There's a difference between being morally impure before God and being ceremonially or ritually impure. So it's not as if the mother had sinned because she had a child, and that's why we went to Genesis and, uh, and Psalm this morning before getting here, because God has a high view of human life. So, so the birth of a child is not, is not inherently sinful, although you are bringing a sinner into the world, certainly. It's not sinful to bear children. But childbirth would render a woman unclean. And so there was a purification process that she needed to walk through in order to be cleansed, and in, in order to enjoy fellowship with God and uh, to enjoy fellowship in the temple and offer sacrifices to God. There was a, a process that she was to walk through after giving birth to a baby. And so you're probably asking, well, what makes having a baby ritually unclean? Moral impurity is when we sin against God. But what makes having a baby ritually unclean when God commands us as his people to have children, to be fruitful and multiply? Why then is there what this seems to be is a discrepancy in what God's word says? And this is where the scholars have fun and they just speculate, and, and there's lots of different speculation as to why it is. What seems to be the most likely, what makes the most sense for us in dealing with Leviticus is we see um, the blood and the importance of what blood is and what it represents, and that it represents life. And uh, in, the, in the process of childbirth, there's a loss of a lot of blood, right? If, you've, uh, if you know anything about that, you know there's a loss of blood in child rearing and in childbirth. And so there's an importance in that blood being lost, and that needs to be reconciled. And so scholars believe that that is why uh, a woman would be considered unclean. And then there's, there's other reasons for it as well. We also know that for a woman, being, giving birth is not a, it's, not, it's natural in that, you know, that's how God designed it, but it's not the natural, regular um, walk that a woman would walk. They're not normally, they're not always, you know, giving birth. And so it's a, it's a process that's not necessarily normal for a lady to walk through, um, but it is something that God uh, brings to them as he does. And so it would have been inappropriate for a woman to go to the temple and to worship when there is this loss of blood that she's experiencing after childbirth. And so there needs to be this process. You can't come into the, uh, the holiness of God in his sanctuary and worship him and be unclean. And, the, and we've read that and we're just getting into a, a section in Leviticus that God kind of lays out what is clean and what is unclean. Um, and and when can, like, what can you approach me with and what can you not? And so God instituted a purification ritual in Leviticus 12 for women to walk through to be restored to that proper fellowship. And what's interesting about this is that, and just a parallel for us, is that sometimes the greatest struggles that, that we walk through and that we um, have, they come because we've corrupted something that God has said is good. 
And so we think of maybe sex. And we have issues in our marriages or issues in our lives because we have corrupted something that God has designed for his children to be good. We've corrupted that uh, and we've used it and we've abused it and we haven't followed the way that God has designed it to be, to be used and uh, as a result, we suffer the consequences of that sin and of that disobedience. And uh, a parallel here to just the fact that, um, that blood can have that same effect, at least as we read it in Leviticus here. There was, there was a, a use for blood, and life is in the blood. And uh, I'm not saying suggesting that childbirth is a twist of, of God's creation or anything like that. But just uh, the fact that it can be used in different ways... Um, and, the, and the picture of it, and, and when it is used inappropriately, it's abused, and we suffer for that sin's consequence. So we see that impurity is prescribed, and, and we're going to walk through what that looks like. And first we see in the birth of a son, and we see that, the, that in the case of a, of a son being born, that the woman is unclean for seven days. And that was to last, this initial impurity was to last for seven days. And if we, as we walk through this this uh, section on uncleanness, you're going to kind of see um, different time frames given to different impurities. And certainly this section of uncleanness that God is dealing with in Moses is one that we would say, wow, that is a lot of time compared to what we just came out of with the animals where it was like you were just unclean for a few hours. This is obviously very different. The woman was unclean for seven days and, and then continued in that for another 33 and so we see the varying degrees of uncleanness and how God deals with those, and we'll see more of that as we walk through. But certainly this type of uncleanness was a little bit more serious to God in the fact that it lasted for seven whole days. It wasn't just by the end of the day. And during this first seven days, the, the woman was to be kind of left on her own, and I, I imagine that that's not something that the ladies would be opposed to anyways, because if you can imagine what it would be like to give birth, you know, thousands of years ago when God's Word was written, they didn't have modern medicine, you didn't have things to help you with uh, some of the pain and some of that stuff was prescribed in order for the, the woman to just get healthy and to be restored and for the baby to, um, to grow, for the baby to learn how to breastfeed, uh, for the baby to certainly get stronger and get strength. And so there was just a time of rest after uh, something that takes a lot of work for uh, a lady to walk through. And so she was unclean for seven days. And in that period, you, if you came into contact, as in if you touched her or sat where she sat or um, was on the bed where she laid on the bed, those kinds of things, you would be considered unclean. And there was, uh, and there was law for that. And, we, and you were to avoid that. And so the lady was left on her own. It didn't mean that you could not see her and she was in isolation. It just meant that you were to avoid contacting and getting uncleanness from her in those seven days, but certainly there to still help. And then on day eight, she was free, and we see how, how uh, important the picture of circumcision is, because on day eight, the mother was to take the child to, to break that period of isolation or purification and to bring her child to be circumcised um, and to, uh, to be circumcised in the sanctuary. And so in verse 3, we see this break from her purifying that she continues on then in verse 4 to fulfill. But it shows us that circumcision was prioritized for the nation of Israel, that it was important. And we know that because in Genesis 17, God commands His people to circumcise 
their children as a sign of the covenant that God has with his people. The covenant between God and his people and circumcision was a sign of that, a picture of that. It was a mark on the body that the child was a member of the covenant of God and of his people, that he had entered into covenant community with God. And this act really was meant to signify an inner reality. It was not meant to be something that purified and um, made that child holy, but it was something that was supposed to reflect an inner reality, that this person was committed wholly to God, devoted to God. And that's why we read in Leviticus 26, which we will come to eventually in the end of the year, Lord willing, where God describes for us a time where Israel was disobedient, and he describes it as uncircumcised hearts, uncircumcised hearts, hearts that were walking away from God, that were far from him, that were not committed to him. Even though they were physically circumcised, their hearts were not. Again, pointing to the reality that circumcision is not a matter of the flesh, but it's a matter of the heart. And what God really is after is our heart and not our actions. And so circumcision was a picture of the devotion of the spiritual reality of the relationship that this person had with God. And so it was important for the son to be circumcised on the eighth day. And then after that, there was a waiting period, as we see in verse 4. And the woman was to continue on in the purification process, and she was to wait. And it says that she was to wait 33 days, bringing the entire process for her to 40 days. We know the importance of that number 40 in the Bible. When we think of the flood, we think of uh, God, or Jesus rather, in the wilderness, and the temptations that he endured for 40 days. And that number denotes completeness or wholeness or thoroughness. And so this waiting period has that certainly surrounding it. And during this time, as we read in, in uh, chapter 12, we read in verse 4 that she should not touch anything holy nor come into the sanctuary. So this second period of purifying the woman was to stay away from the sanctuary. Now what, we're really, what she's, it's really saying is she was to basically, in our context, you know, refrain from going to church and fellowshipping with God's people and going where going into the presence of God and offering sacrifices. She was asked to refrain from that, where, where some of that community would have happened, and it was because of her uncleanness with childbirth and the loss of blood and all the things that surrounded that. And so you can imagine how difficult the time this would be. Certainly, we have all experienced that to some degree with COVID, although our friends and those around us aren't continuing on necessarily as we wait. But even maybe when you isolate, you know, from COVID, you know what that feels like to have everybody else able to gather on Sunday, but you're not able to be there. And you know this, this feeling of like, man, I wish I was there uh, worshiping with God's people praising God and, his, and being there with them in His presence. Now, we know God's presence is with us always, but certainly being with God's people, worshiping together, would have been a hard thing to have to miss out on. And so that would have served the people as a reminder of God's holiness. When there is a time of uncleanness that, and, in, and in man's sinfulness, not necessarily this case, um, but we're reminded of how holy God is and how we have to be careful in how we approach God. And that apart from God, there is no way for man, for his creation to be clean apart from God. 
And so God's holiness, as we have talked about in Leviticus and learned, God's holiness is a serious thing. It's not something to be trite with. It's not something to mock, certainly. It's something that we need to be aware of and something that we need to keep in front of us as we worship Him, that He is a holy God and that He calls us to live set apart and to not to clean ourselves up to come to Him, but certainly in looking at what He's done for us to desire to please Him with our lives. And so as impurity is prescribed, we see it secondly in the birth of a daughter, and we'll walk through this a little bit quicker because it's very similar to that of a son, only being different in a few things. The period of uncleanness, the initial period is 14 days rather than seven, which makes the waiting period a bit longer there. And then because Israel did not practice female circumcision, there was nothing like that for the females, um, and uh, so there was no, no, uh, nothing that she would break that process for with a female child, and then she would walk right into the waiting period, which in Leviticus 12 is 66 days, bringing the total to 80, which is just a doubling of, the su- of it being a son. And so many have asked, what's the case with that? You know, why is, that, why is it that a son, a male, would only do 40 days, but a female would do 80? And there's many also speculations on what that would look like and why. And the Bible is not clear for us in Leviticus 12 why, it is, and so we can only offer um, some conjecture on it, and it seems to be that the most probable thing might be that, this, that there's a female in, in view here, and because there's a, a female in view that who will also walk through this process eventually, Lord willing, if God blesses her with children, um, there's this female in view, and so this process is going to be done, and, and that is why they go through it uh, a second time. But again, it's really only speculation because God doesn't make clear for us but I think as we walk through into the following verses, we will, we will notice very quickly that it's not because of this battle of the genders that seems to be going on in our culture where guys are more powerful than girls or they're greater or it's more desirable to have a male than a female. Because what does God say later when he offers purification? As we read it, we would have seen God does not ask for any different of, a, of an offering for a male or a female. And so it's not that in God's view, he likes males more or likes females less. God likes, loves all of his children, and he, and he asks for the same sacrifice for each child that is born. So as we get to verse 6 and, and verse 8 and following, we see the purification that is provided for a female, a lady that has a child and gives birth to a new child. And what's interesting, the first thing that is offered is a burnt offering. Now, when we read Leviticus, we see normally the sin offering is what is offered. When there is sin being dealt with, God asks for a sin offering first and then a burnt offering. And in this case, there's a burnt offering. Again, pointing to the fact that this was not sinful, morally sinful for a lady to have a child, which we wouldn't dispute, I don't think. And so first we see a burnt offering, an expression of gratitude for new birth, celebration, celebration for, for God, for his blessing, thanksgiving to God for a child, this renewed dedication of this child to the Lord, but also for the female who has been unable to worship God and be in his presence and offer sacrifice for the past 40 to 80 days, there is this, this rededication of her and her child to the Lord because she's been out of fellowship for a number of days. 
And so a burnt offering is offered, and then we see this purification offering. It'll say, some will say a sin offering, but it, it doesn't have sin in mind because the mother is not guilty of any sin at this point. And so it's seen more as a purification offering because we've established God's high view of childbirth. This was an offering that was to make up for the loss of blood during childbirth, something that would have compromised the purity of the altar and the sanctuary where God's people worshipped him. And so this, this offering had a purifying effect. Blood was shed to deal with the corruption and the impurity of the blood that was lost at childbirth. And then we see atonement in verse 7. This offering was to make atonement for the lady, and it was to make amends for the ritual impurity that she was walking in and that she had gone through. And so the blood was shed and it atoned for that and allowed her to be ceremonially, ceremonially pure and to come before God and to worship again. And then we see in verse 7b, it was complete. It was complete and, it said, and she was able to, uh, it says you'll be clean from the flow of, she shall be from the flow of her blood and she's able to then join God's people again in fellowship. And so by following these procedures, the female was welcomed back in and she was able to join, she was able to offer sacrifices to God again and to worship him, to participate in the fellowship meals as we've talked about in the different sacrifices. But then as we walk into verse 8, a beautiful picture again in Leviticus of the grace of God. The grace of God. Because God's covenant, it included all of His people. And it included all people as we learn into getting into the New Testament. God's grace was extended to all of mankind. And so if a lamb could not be afforded for a purification or a sin offering, there was an option for a pigeon or a turtle dove to be offered in the place of that lamb. See, the importance of the sacrifice, as we've learned, is not in the value of that sacrifice. It's in the heart of the worshiper who's coming to God. That's where the value and the importance of that sacrifice is. It's in, it's in our hearts as we come to God, not in the amount that we bring, in the amount that we sacrifice and what we give, but in our hearts to God. And we know that this was something that they were obligated, this offering was, obliga it was obligated by the woman when she gave birth, and God in His grace makes a way for even those who did not have the means to do so to, to uh, be atoned for the impurity that they were walking through. And this passage is special to us as Christians because it was reflected in the life of our Savior. If you turn to Luke chapter 2, you would see this in Luke chapter 2, verse 22 and following. I'll read for you. When the time came for their purification, this is at Jesus' birth. When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, and this is our quote in Leviticus, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So Mary offered to the Lord for Jesus in his birth, in the purification, she offered turtle doves, two turtle doves or two pigeons. She, and, and what that points to is rather the, um, 
the meager income of Jesus and his family, certainly, but it also shows us this complete devotion to God as, and the, the family that Jesus was raised in and the home that he was raised in was a home that honored God, that honored God's word, that lived obediently to God's word. And may that certainly be said of us as we, as we live according to God's word, as we lead and guide our families. May, we, may it be said that we honored the Lord, that we kept uh, the words uh, that God has for us, that he's laid out for us, that we obeyed him and that we lived in a home that honored him. So Joseph and Mary had a meager income as they presented their two birds, and Paul also speaks to the, or the poverty, rather, of Jesus in 2 Corinthians when he says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Amen. Paul was encouraging the believers that, that Jesus, and he was encouraging them to be generous with their wealth because of the spiritual riches that they had because of what Jesus had done for them. Coming from heaven, coming down from heaven, offering a way to purify God's people. And so these verses remind us of what has been done for us to purify us before God, making us rich in, in Jesus' poverty, being able to be rich. And that's not, obviously that's not speaking of wealth, that's speaking of spiritual riches that we have in Christ because of his sacrifice. And so we want to point in the, as we close here to the spiritual purification that we have. The, pur- the purification process would have drawn the Israelites' eyes to see the importance of life and death because of what blood signifies. And that certainly would have been in view as a child was born in the nation of Israel. God is holy. We are not. We are sinful. And so we come to God in the way that He prescribes. We are made clean before God by the way that He prescribes for us and by the way that God makes for us in His Savior. And it reminds us of the life and death and the purification that was done on our behalf. As we've sung about this morning, we have been declared clean. We've been made holy. We've been declared righteous. And so our spiritual purification is first that we've been, that our sin has been purged. There's a purging of our sin. As Christ goes to the cross, as he deals with our sin, as he lives a perfect life for us, as he makes atonement for our sin, he lives life that we couldn't live. And as a result, gives us the power to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. Our sin has been dealt with and purged on the cross. And then we, God sanctifies, and maybe a better word would be he justifies his people before he does that. He makes us holy. He declares us clean. As we've said, he declares us holy and set apart. And so as a result of our sin being purged, we've been reconciled and our sin has been paid for and reconciliation. We come to enjoy fellowship with God and we can only because we've been justified and our sins have been dealt with. Whereas before in our sinful state, there was broken fellowship with God and it was impossible to commune with God. The result is spiritual purification. 
And the result finally is new birth. And this is where we draw parallels to Leviticus 12 and where our minds should go when we read about new birth. And another theological word for rebirth or new birth is regeneration, as you've heard, or being born again. See, the reality is that we know is that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And what does the Bible say? That we were made alive spiritually in Christ. Regeneration is a radical change because it takes somebody from death to life, spiritually speaking, from death to life. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but who is it that made us alive in Christ? Our Father, Jesus Christ, God. And we read that we are new creations because of what has been done for us. We've been given new spiritual life, something that we did not have before and something that we could not get on our own. See, God is the source of transformation in our lives. He's the source of new birth. We cannot do that on ourselves. Flesh cannot, in our flesh, we cannot become spiritual without the spirit inside of us, and that is given to us by God. And we read something similar to this in John 3. I want to read for you just very quickly the the passage where Nicodemus comes to Jesus. And there's a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? There's this desire that Nicodemus has to be born again. It's not that he was dumb and didn't understand this. He understood it and he wanted to be born again. And so he's asking this question. And Jesus says, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And then he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What is required of a believer to be born again. It's repentance and it's faith. It's repentance and it's faith, but that is only done by a work of the Spirit in us. We cannot see the kingdom of God unless we're born again, and that is only done by God, by His gift of the Spirit, as He brings that to us, and as the Spirit indwells us and leads us to Him and draws us to Him. So it's necessary for us to be born again in order to see the kingdom. And this result, this new birth that we have been given, should result in us being sanctified. We start to live out the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5. We start to choose righteousness over, obedient, over sin. Right? We choose obedience to God over sin. We put to death the deeds of the flesh. We begin to love others the way that God has loved us. What a great song to sing this morning of the love of God May that be something that drives our love for other people, something that causes us to change the way that we interact with other people as we experience the love that God has for us. And then we use our gifts to serve God. See, the birth of a new baby in the Old Testament reminds us of the new birth that we have been given as believers, that God has graciously given to us in His Spirit. 1 Corinthians says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, in chapter 5, he is a new creation. That's us. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 
So by the Spirit, we've been reconciled to God, united forever. We're members of the family of God. And what a joy it is for us to be given new life in Christ. Would you pray with me this morning? Father God, we thank you that we can be here this morning to hear from you in Leviticus 12. And we thank you for your high view of life, God, for the way that you love all of your creation, all of your people. And God, how you bless your creation with the gift of new birth. God, we're so grateful for this passage in Leviticus and how it shows us and draws our minds to see the new birth that has been given to us in Christ and only done by us. Just as a mother does all the work in childbirth, so too does your Holy Spirit do all of the work in our lives for new birth, God. And we are so grateful for that. We have sung about that this morning. And God, we praise you for uh, your love for us. And we ask, God, that you would just lead us and guide us to, us, to obedience, to sanctification as we honor your word, as we honor you for what has been done for us. God, we forever, are forever grateful and indebted to you. Our lives are in service to you for what you've done for us, God. Thank you this morning. We pray these things in your holy name. Amen.